You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2015. Today's episode is titled, Keys to a Successful Career. People generally want to have a successful career and organizations want to hire people who can and will be successful. What are some keys to career success? To build enduringly excellent organizations, management must build with people who are called of God to be part of their organization. Wise management will search for people who are both called and commissioned by authority figures to the work of their organizations. Workers seeking to find and fulfill their life purpose will, among other things, display the traits of preparation, humility, and submission to authority. These traits will facilitate the release of the purpose of God in the lives of workers, enable the workers to enjoy career success, and facilitate the delivery of excellent value to those the organization serves. Wise management will patiently search for such people and build their organizations as God provides the right people. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Keys to a Successful Career. Well, welcome to the webinar. This is the Keys to a Successful Career, uh, part of the Wisdom to Win at Work series. We're delighted you're on the call with us. Let me just give you a few uh, ground rules to the uh, time we're going to spend together. Uh, there'll be a presentation of approximately one hour, uh, followed by about 30 minutes of Q&A. During the presentation, you will be muted so that the session can be recorded without extraneous noises. Uh, the recording will be available to you. Uh, the presentation will, be, will include several short polls. These are about 60-second polls, about a minute, minute and a half polls, and they're intended to be additional learning tools for you. So. Please uh, respond promptly when the polls show up. If you have a question, and I hope you do, uh, please submit online through the webinar tool there. You see there's a question uh, chat box that you can send the question to. Use the question. Don't use the chat box. Use the question box. And uh, that way, Philip Moss, who's my uh, host, hosting this seminar for me, will uh, review these questions. He'll compile and condense them and when we get to the Q&A time, he will pose the questions that you pose to him. So as he poses those questions, I'll unmute you, whoever asks the questions, and uh, give you a chance to interact at that time. At the end of the seminar, if you have a question that has not been addressed, uh, I want you to raise your electronic hand. Hopefully you can see on your tool how to do that. And uh, we'll, try to cut, we'll try to answer all the questions as best we can uh, by the end of the seminar. If we have some we don't get to by the end, uh, then we'll try to handle that uh, afterwards offline. Uh, at the conclusion of the webinar, you will receive an electronic communication requesting that you take a short survey regarding this event. To help me improve these training venues, uh, please do respond to this. It'll only take you a few minutes to respond. There's 10 short little questions asking you to provide some perspective on your experience, so please do that. Well, let's begin in prayer, and then we'll start the session. Father, we do thank you for this time to gather, to, to study, to learn, to seek to hear your voice in the context of community, to go deeper with you, to be transformed and aligned with you. And Father, we thank you that you interact with us, and you love us enough that you want to change us and bring us into conformity to your will. So, Father, give us grace as we, as we grow, as we learn through this experience to go where you want us to go, 
to change in the way you want us to change so you, we can do what you called us to do. So, Father, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The title, again, is uh, Keys to a Successful Career, Wisdom to Win at Work. And we want to start off today talking about marks of success. We're in a culture that uh, is all about success, and everyone seems to have an opinion about what success is. And there's some fairly common uh, ingredients to most people's opinions. So some common marks of success that I run into are wealth is success, fame is success, influence is success, and perhaps longevity of life is a success. While all of those certainly are, are things that we might enjoy, um, most people will view them with such, such high regard, they would say these are the marks of success. But there could be other marks of success as well. For example, there was a man who lived at one time who was penniless, who was homeless, who was jobless, and he was rejected. And he was regarded by many as a successful person. So what I want to do now is have you take a short poll and tell me which of these two approaches to success do you subscribe to? The one on the left, which is about wealth, fame, influence, and longevity, or the one on the right, which is about penniless, homeless, jobless, and rejected. So if you would, weigh in. Give me your, uh, your opinion here very quickly. We're going to do this in about, like I said, about 60 seconds. So... Uh, Jump in. We've got 42% have voted, 50% have voted, 58, 67, 75, 83. Come on, the rest of you jump in and vote here. 92. Come on, somebody hasn't voted yet. This is your chance to jump in. Don't be shy. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this, uh, this poll here. And what I'm showing is that 55% uh, of you said that wealth, fame, influence, longevity are the marks of success. 45% picked penniless, homeless, jobless, and rejected. Well, this, uh, this really is pretty consistent with what I see uh, in my studies and my uh, interacting with people around the world that most people think success is tied in some way to money. Uh, for example, here's Robert, Robert Kawasaki, who is the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a very popular uh, book, and he has offers seminars, training around uh, the United States and around the world. In fact, I find that Robert is very popular even among the Christian world. And so here's a recent communication that he sent out that uh, is, uh, I think expresses his view of success. I'm just going to read it to you real quickly, and I've highlighted some of the key things I want you to note here on the screen. He said, my rich dad often said, my banker has never asked for my report card. My banker has never asked if I had good grades. So I ask you, what's so important about good grades? A good education is more important than ever before because knowledge is power. But grades, what value are grades? No banker, partner, investor will ever ask, can I see your report card? What school did you go to? 
What was your GPA? What a banker will ask for is your financial statement. Your financial statement is your report card for the real world. By looking at your financial statement, your banker can tell if you're a financial genius or a financial dunce. Remember, good grades are important while you're in school, but your financial statement is your report card once your school days are over. So this is a very common perspective, and frankly, it's, it's very tempting to buy into this perspective. In fact, I would say the vast majority of us do buy into it at some level. Even the secular world, people like Forbes magazine, each year they publish their, their list of the richest people in the world, and they published their one this past February 2015, and they highlighted Bill Gates, Carlos Slim, and Warren Buffett as the wealthiest people in the world. And by the way, these three men have been in these positions for a number of years. Uh, Bill Gates at one time was the second wealthiest, and Carlos Slim was the wealthiest, and now Bill Gates has overtaken him, according to Forbes. So Warren Buffett supposedly is worth $72 billion. Carlos Slim is supposedly worth $77 billion, and Bill Gates is supposedly worth $79 billion. So these men, all of whom clearly are very, very wealthy and can do pretty much whatever they want to do, are considered to be some of the most successful people in the world. In fact, if you ask, ask the typical person that you might run into on the street, in an airport, in your church, among your friends, you ask them, you know, are these men successful? Almost invariably, you will hear a resounding yes, they are a success. Because the assumption that we all tend to make is that money is success. But that begs the question, does money really equal to success? Is that really true? And if we bend the knee to the Word of God, if we're truly committed to the truth of the Word of God being our foundation, the foundational reality in our lives, then the Word of God has to weigh in on this point. We need some biblical guidance on whether or not money truly is success. So here's some biblical thoughts for you to consider. The first thought is, if you lack stewardship skills, the wealth given to you, either through your work or through an inheritance, will not be blessed. And just consider Proverbs chapter 20, verse 21, which reads, An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. And, of course, the, the inference here is that if you gain something hastily, you are really not prepared to manage it. You're not prepared to steward it. And that does indeed seem to be the case. And you can look a lot of examples. You probably know people who have inherited money and squandered it. You may have known people who have won the lottery and were unable to steward that and manage that well, and it wound up ruining their lives, which, by the way, there are statistics on that that are fairly widely published that indicate that the lottery does not really bless people. It tends to ruin their lives. So you can see these are examples of how wealth gained too quickly will not be blessed. So that's one biblical thought here on this. Makes you pause and think for a second. Secondly, here's another couple of texts here that say some rather astounding things about this point. If you focus on accumulating financial wealth, this is idolatry which will be judged. Now that is a startling thing. Because there are many of us that think we, uh, we are after money for, to bless God and to support his causes. And well, I think for some of us, if not the vast majority of us, that's just a ruse. 
that's just a cover for a bad motive. So look specifically what Solomon tells us in Proverbs 28, verse 20 and verse 22. First, he tells us a faithful man will abound with blessings. So he's contrasting a faithful man now here with someone who's not faithful. And the unfaithful man is one who hastens to be rich. Now, a person that hastens to be rich is specifically what this text is trying to say. If you look at the language, you look at the, uh, the root word here for hasten, it means to narrowly focus. It means to get really zeroed in with your priorities and your time and your energies on building material wealth. If that's what you do, you will be judged. You will be punished. Now, that's startling. I mean, that's just shocking to us because we think money is such a good thing. And money has a purpose, but is not should be the should not be the focus of our lives. So if if it becomes the focus of our lives, we have to know it's going to lead to some kind of punishment. And this word here for unpunished means you're guilty and will be punished. That's the sense of the word. Now in verse 22 of Proverbs 28, he continues with some of this thinking. He, he uses now the word hasten again, but it's a little different word. The English translation is the same, but actually the Hebrew is different. So in this text, it says a man with an evil eye hastens in the sense of being anxious and fearfully pursuing after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon them. So the very thing that you're trying to pursue will elude you, and in fact what will happen is you will get the opposite. So the judgment here on the person who is pursuing money will be poverty. Now, that's not necessarily always the way it happens. There are examples of people that are focused on getting wealthy, and they don't seem to come to poverty, at least financial poverty. But if you look at Psalm 73, what you'll see is that people that have wealth but do not have godly character and therefore do not have godly stewardship skills what that, that wealth really is, is a setup for judgment. Now, that's, again, another one of these startling texts that really just amaze us and almost scare us when we consider it. Well, there's even more to this, so we want to consider another biblical thought, a thought that really pertains to something that we all are laboring for, and that is the whole idea of retirement. Retirement seems to be the consuming thought. We take jobs and we work hard to make as much money as we can, as fast as we can, so that we can retire as soon as we can, so we can do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. That is a huge driving agenda for virtually all of us, if we are brutally honest. Some of us may want to deny that, but I would submit to you that in the culture that we live in today, it is very hard not to think this way. Well, Scripture has something to say about this idea as well. So we're going to look at the text out of Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, and just consider again, is money really success? In this particular text, Jesus is talking to his disciples, as he many times did, and there is, um, they're doing this in a public setting. So around the disciples and Jesus, a crowd has gathered, who's listening to what Jesus is teaching as a disciple. So think, think about having like a small group uh, meeting, 
and uh, but you're doing it in public, say at a mall or an airport, and you're talking to the people, your closest associates, and now people are gathered around to overhear what you're saying to them. And so that's what's happening here. So, uh, so as Jesus is talking along, uh, then somebody interrupts him. Uh, and they, they're asking about Jesus, wanting Jesus to intercede for him to solve a family problem. And Jesus then responds to that and uses that context to launch into this discussion about money. So he said to them, and keep in mind that them here is probably his disciples. He's still focused on his disciples, even though this person from the outside his circle has brought a subject up. He wants to respond to the subject. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. Now remember, a parable is a true story. It's a real illustration from a real event that could happen in that context. So a parable is not a made-up story. A parable is a true illustration from life which means that people can readily identify it with it because they, they understand the picture. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Uh, again, this is a, a very challenging text for us because it just seems to, to tax everything within our being and everything within the culture that we're in and challenges us to think differently. Because here you have a man that is enjoying some financial success. He's labored, he's obviously worked hard, and the Lord has blessed him in the sense that he has granted him favor and success in what he did. The work of his hands had produced the crop that he was trying to produce. And now he had had such an abundance of crops, he begins to think, now, I want you to notice how his thought processes are done as a solo act. There's no indication that anybody else is thinking with him. He's not talking to anyone. He's not getting counsel from anyone. He's not really pursuing anybody, any other advice. He's just thinking internally and reasoning within himself. He's doing this as a lone ranger. And he's concluded, well, i got plenty of things to, to take care of myself. Why don't I just stop working for a while? Why don't I retire and take life easy, not work so hard and do what I want to do? You know, go travel where I want to travel, just drink what I want to drink, just have party and have fun and relax. You see, this is, this is very common thinking. This is how, what we call retirement, and this is what we extol. In fact, if, you, uh, if you're around the financial services world, you know this is a big deal. This is what they market, is you know, helping you get ready to retire. And it's all about your financial security, our perception of financial security. So this man executed his retirement plan. He retired, and God's response to him is, you fool. 
A fool is someone who does not think right, does not think clearly, is not somebody who can think about the, all the implications of his decisions and his, his perspectives and his worldview. So this particular man was very foolish because he didn't see reality well. And God communicates, this very night, it's over for you. And then who's going to get what's prepared for yourself? Now, that's kind of interesting. The focus here was on the transition. That is, when you transition from this life to the next, the assets that you leave behind because you don't take them with you, those assets stay behind. And this man apparently had not prepared anyone to steward the assets he left behind. He apparently had the attitude, well, I'm just going to use these up and I want to die when I spend my last penny, which I've heard that philosophy asserted by many people. In fact, I remember talking to one of my good friends who was a leader in the Christian community, and his comment to me was, you know, I want to die spending my last cent. He had no sense of passing on, a, 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 you know, any kind of financial heritage to his heirs, none at all. And certainly this man didn't either. It was all about him, his pleasure, his comfort, and convenience. And so this is the background against which uh, the Lord makes a very profound statement. You know, this is how it's going to be for anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So when you are using money to give yourself pleasure, comfort, convenience, and security, and that is your primary agenda, and you're not seeking first the kingdom of God, you're seeking first yourself, it will not go well. You will be the fool. And so this is a great example of how money is not success. And you could say, furthermore, fame is not success, influence is not success, even long life is not success. And I would go so far as to say poverty is not success. The only reason I bring that in is because many people, when they start, start seeing that money can't be the profound definition of success, they go to the other extreme and say, well, it must be poverty. And that's not true either. So what we have to do is we have to learn to see success in terms of wealth that God values. That is the real definition of success. And you say, well, what does it mean to be rich toward God? What is, what's the wealth that God values? Well, I want to take another poll here and give you a chance to respond to that real quickly. So the question is, what does it mean to be rich toward God? So I've given you four, four choices here. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and launch the poll, and let me just read these choices to you. The choices are giving money to fund God's purposes, being financially poor, giving away 90% of your income and living on 10%, or finding fulfilling and fulfilling the purpose of God for your life. So those are your options. Please weigh in with your view. What does it mean to be rich toward God? All of you voted, and all of you said finding and fulfilling the purpose of God for your life? Wow, I guess the seminar is over there. I thought we would have to talk about this. Well, I'm, I'm proud of you. Actually, there are some very well-meaning Christians that if I gave you their names, you would probably be surprised at who would say number three there, that giving away 90% of your income and living on 10% uh, is, is the way you be rich toward God. There are a lot of people that think that. And 
there are many people that think being financially poor, having a poverty mentality. Historically, in the Christian church, there's been a lot of that that's gone on. And today, a lot of people think that giving money to fund God's purposes, that's what it's all about. In fact, they hide their, their worship of money and their definition that money is success under the guise that they're, they want to be wealthy so they can fund God's causes. Well, I'm proud of you. You recognize that really what's being rich toward God of those options I gave you was finding and fulfilling the purpose of God for your life. Well, that's good. So we want to continue on that theme and uh, talk a little bit about what Jesus defines success to be. See, because Jesus was the man who was penniless, homeless, uh, jobless, and rejected by the leaders of his time, and yet I would argue he was the greatest success ever. In fact, Jesus lived the last three years of his life apparently off the charity of others. And it might have been largely driven by the charity of women. So Jesus lived a life that most people would look at and say, uh, this, you know, this is not someone I want to emulate, not somebody I want to follow. And yet I would argue that Jesus, of all the people that have ever lived, is, is the greatest and most successful person who's ever lived. And that's because success to Jesus was being rich toward God. That is having wealth that transcends this life, wealth that God values, wealth that, that is more valuable than money, than financial assets. And so we have to learn to limit our definition of success. We cannot, excuse me, we cannot limit our definition of success to tangible wealth, fame, influence, and longevity. Those can be markers of success, but they're not the marker. They're not the profound marker. They're not really the primary marker. You know, wh how much wealth do you need? You need the wealth you need to do what you're called to do. How much fame do you need? You need the fame you need to do what you're called to do. How much influence do you need? You need the influence you need to do what you're called to do. How much longevity? How much time do you need? You need the time you need to do what you're called to do. You see, the answers are always the same. These various things that we value and think are marks, marks of success are simply tools to help us do what God has called us to do, which is the real measure of success. If there's existence after this life, we must learn to think at this level. We must think about the things that God values, the wealth that he thinks is important. Jesus reinforced this idea in John 17, 4, with what I think is the great definition of success the scripture gives us, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing or completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus found and fulfilled his life purpose, and he fulfilled it completely. And I want you to note that when he's saying this, he had not died yet. He's saying this before he actually finished his ultimate work, which was death on the cross. So all that had happened prior to this time, for the past 33 years, all that happened was part of the work that he had been assigned to do, and he had done it in such a way that it brought glory to the Father. And so that made him a success. You see, every day, every moment of every day, we have a chance to choose to be successful. And the way we choose to be successful is we choose to be obedient to God, to do his will, 
which is the specific purpose he has for each of us, and his ways, which are the biblical principles that we are to live by. So Jesus defines success as obedience to the will and the ways of God. That, to me, is the profound definition of success. That's what it means to be rich toward God. That's what it means to have wealth that transcends this life, is this is obedience, because this is something that will go with us. Money, fame, influence, longevity, those don't go with you. When you pass from this life to the next, what goes with you is your faithfulness, your obedience, the the work that you did which lined up with the will and ways of God. And let me hasten to say this. There are many things that each of us can do and could do in life based on the skill and the ability that we have and even opportunities. The key, though, is learning what you should do and doing the things you should do. And the things you should do are always a subset of the things that you could do. So if you can't distinguish between should and could, if you can't recognize things that you could do but you're not supposed to do from the things that you could do but you're supposed to do, if you can't make that distinction, then the enemy will have an easy time distracting you, and you will have a hard time really being successful. Success is obedience to the specific will of God for your life, the things that you should do, and doing that those things according to the ways of God. That's living according to a biblical worldview. This is what success is. This is the mandate for every professing Christian. This is, as far as I can tell, is the only profound definition of success. Everything else, wealth, fame, influence, longevity, etc., are, are simply tools to enable us to have real success, and that is to build a wealth that God values. So I'm, I'm really trying to make this point to get this really clear, because if you can't get clear on this, you will always be distracted and impaired with a bad view of money. So let me just say one other thing here about money. What is money? Money is simply a temporal tool to facilitate obedience to and worship of God. Now, some of you may have been a little surprised by the phrase worship of God, that money is a way that we worship God. Keep in mind, you cannot worship God and money. So what you want to do is use money to worship God. Whatever provision you have, you take money and you trade up to get true wealth. You use your money to align yourself with the will and ways of God in your life. Use your money to facilitate your obedience and the obedience of others to, to what God has called them to do. This is how you worship God. The word worship here has two senses in Scripture. First sense is, is to bow down and kiss. That's to show reverence and submission and total allegiance to. The other sense of worship is actually to express that allegiance and devotion in service. So we are to serve the Lord by using tangible assets as tools to enable us to obey him. That is the sense of what real success is. So one finds success in life by discovering the will of God for one's life. So I want to do another poll real quickly here. 
in this poll, we want to talk about how does one discover the will of God? That is the purpose of God for one's life. How do you actually do that? So I'm going to launch the poll, and I'm giving you four answers here. Uh, first answer, God does not have a purpose for me. Secondly, finding the purpose of, of God for my life. Uh, and I can't see all the answer there. The Bible provides principles to help me find the purpose of God for my life, and my purpose is to make money and support the causes of Christ. So those are your four basic answers. So real quickly, weigh in here. We're at 86%. 93%, 100%, okay, very good. Well, all of you uh, answered it very well. Um, I have had people uh, look me in the face when I talk about the purpose of God for their life and tell me God has no purpose for my life, none. Uh, I find that just amazing that they would think that way. And there are other people that think that finding the purpose of God for my life is just, it's just a matter of luck. I just lucked into it. And many, I've, I've found many that try to suggest that my purpose is to make money and support God's causes. I guess we don't have anybody on the call that thinks that way. Or if you do think that way, you're not being truthful. So I encourage you, uh, be truthful with yourself, what you really think. The, the right, the profound answer to me is the Bible provides provides principles to help me discover my purpose. That is the purpose of God for my life. So if you are convicted of that truth, that you know that Scripture provides guidance, what a wonderful thing, that Scripture will provide guidance to help us discover the purpose of God for our lives. Let me just make a couple of comments here before we launch into the meat of what I want to say here today. I find it interesting as I watch Christian pundits today, many of whom I deeply respect, and if I told you their names, you would probably know them and, and respect them too, but I try to be a good student of very, very godly men in all different streams of Christianity. And so I like to listen to their teachings, I listen to their podcasts, I read, uh, read articles that they write and books that they write, and I find that there is a consistent theme among most of these pundits that recognizes that God has a purpose, and he, he uses everyone very strategically, but there's almost no recognition that the, that there are principles of Scripture that specifically guide us into the specific will that God has for each one of us. I haven't seen any of those really step up and say that, which that's kind of sad. Now, as I pondered this and asked the Lord about this, what has come to me and I'm not claiming that I'm hearing the Lord clearly, but what comes to me is that most of these men that I'm following that are leaders in the Christian community today are, are men who are not in the workplace. They are men who are in vocational callings that you know we would call full-time Christian service, which I don't think that is a very good term, but that is a very common term. Uh, and so they don't think in terms of the workplace where most of us live and work. And so they don't really think in terms of how do you help someone in the workplace find the purpose of God for their lives. And furthermore, they don't really think about how to help the people that in the, quote, vocational ministry, how to find the purpose of God for their lives. I was listening to a, a teaching this week by a very prominent, well-known um, 
preacher and very articulate preacher. This man has been, uh, you know, preaching for 40, 45 years and highly respected, does a lot of conferences and seminars. And again, if I told you his name, you would readily know who he is. And in the midst of his message this week, he was talking about why the clergy, and again, that's the terminology I'm using out of concession. I don't like that terminology. I think it's very a very misleading terminology. But he's talking about these men in supposedly full-time service. Why are they having such problems with sexual sins? And basically, he was... He was not gonna. He was not gonna go to the idea that maybe it's an indicator these people are out of place. Maybe these people are in the vocational ministry for the wrong reasons. Maybe they think they're supposed to be in that ministry because that's the only way you can serve God, which is a very Greek dualistic idea of how we find the purpose of God for our lives. So, again, I don't see in these these men that I. I deeply love and appreciate so much, I don't see a profound understanding of how to find the purpose of God for your life. And so instead of really questioning, when you see people making big mistakes, you've got to stop and ask, what's going on here? Is this just a character issue? Or is this a person who is really out of place and doesn't understand it? A person who needs to be guided into the will and what way of God's better than they are right now? Those are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. And I think scripture gives us some profound insight into how to answer the questions. So specifically what I want to point you to is what I call the C4 principle. And those of you that have taken the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar, you're familiar with this principle. This, I believe, is the principle scripture gives us to help us discover the purpose of God, specific purpose of God for our lives. And I would love to see the Christian leaders of today begin to to look at this principle, begin to apply this principle, and begin to ask the hard questions with everyone they relate to, and that is, are you doing what it is that God has created you to do? And so the C4 principle stands for first calling. God has put passion in your heart, a desire, a hunger, and a thirst to do something, something that he wants done as part of his plan and purpose and he's created you to play a role, and he's given you passion to do it. The challenge is sin gets in the way of our ability to see it. And so we have to grow and mature in Christ and get help to discover this. The next aspect is character. Character is our ability to mature and grow and be Christ-like, to live according to a biblical worldview, to live in alignment with God. That's what character is. Arguably, it's the greatest component of C4. And then you have capability. Capability is a skill and ability God has given you to do what it is that you are called to do. And God is very intentional. You have specific skill and ability that God has sovereignly given you. He hasn't given you everything. He's given you what you need to do what you're called to do. And whatever it is you're called to do, you're probably called to do it in the context of a community because almost all every time, with every person, whatever they're called to do requires more than themselves. And they have to have other people with different skill, different ability to complement them to come in and enable all of the people in that community to do what they're called to do. And finally, God gives us a way to validate you know, our calling, and that is commissioning agents, authority figures in our life that see the purpose of God in our lives and begin to call it out long before we see it. In fact, my thesis and my experience has been that 
commissioning agents almost always see the purpose of God before the person sees it. So in your life, I submit to you, there are probably commissioning agents in your life that see the purpose of God on you better than you see it on yourself even now. And so part of learning how to walk in God's ways is to walk according to this principle and discovering the purpose of God for your life. Now, a picture, one way to look at this is that where all of these four circles come together, it forms a little kind of an overlap that I, I would call the target. And that's the place where now this is the should things of life. Everything here fits together. You see, the circles represent the things you could do, but the bullseye represents the thing you should do. So that's what you want to target. You know, I've got to get very discerning about getting down to what I should do. I, this is a common conversation I have with people, and I, there are a number of men I'm working with right now that are that I'm trying to help them understand this because they're doing things that they can do. They're doing things that they have maybe the skill to do, or maybe they have a heart to do it, or you know maybe they've got you know someone who's encouraged them to do it, some commissioning agent. But it, all the pieces aren't coming together. And one of the ways that you know the pieces aren't coming together is by looking at the fruit. And in one particular case I'm thinking about, I'm not going to share with you any names, but in this particular case, what I see here is a person doing a lot of stuff that many people would think would be good. It looks good. It's an event. But, you know, events are just tools. Events are like money. They're about like time. They're like influence. They're like fame. All of these are just tools to enable you to do what you're called to do. And whenever you elevate a tool and make that your goal, you're in idolatry. You cannot elevate a tool and make it your goal. You have to make the goal alignment with God, obedience to his specific will, the things you should do, not just the things you could do. So another picture of this is a track race. You see in a track race, each person has a lane to run in. And the, the objective is to get in your lane, find your lane, and run your race. And you've got to stay in your lane. And so this is the picture you see in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, which reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, of our faith. So this is the challenge of all of us. Can we find our race? Can we identify the things that hinder, the sin that entangles, and get rid of it? And then can we run with perseverance, which means there's going to be resistance, it's going to be challenging, it's going to be hard. We've got to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. You don't get to mark out your own race. You don't get to self-define. You have to discover the race God has assigned to you and the way you're going to run it well is get your eyes fixed on Jesus. So that's a great picture of what we're trying to do with the C4 principle is use that principle to obey Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, find our lane and run our race. So this is what I want to encourage you to really become skilled at is using this tool, this C4 tool, to find the purpose of God for your life. Now let me give an example out of Scripture of how C4 guided King David into his work assignment. Now, King David is like you and me. He has a number of phases of his life. 
And he started out as a young boy. His first phase of life was being a shepherd for his father. He was the eighth boy of eight. He was the youngest boy of eight born to Jesse, his father. And when Saul, to give you some background here, when Saul disobeyed God and was rejected by God, and Samuel, the prophet, was told, and go anoint uh, a new king, and he told him to go to Jesse's home, and he would find the boy there, and Jesse went down his son's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and didn't find the right person. And Samuel says, well, is there, you have another son. And Jesse said, yeah, I've got one that's taking care of the sheep. The lowliest job of all was given to the lowliest son, the youngest son. So he said, go get him, and we won't even sit down until he gets here. So they stood up waiting, and I don't know how long they stood up, but he stood up waiting for David to show up, and David shows up, and the Lord tells Samuel, that's the king. That's the one. Anoint him as king. So now his, he's being transitioned from being that lowly shepherd to now being the king who, would, who was not yet installed, which is a picture of Christ. It's, almost, it's a picture of Christ at his first coming, and now the period of time between David being anointed and the time he's actually installed is a picture of this age where when Christ comes back to be king at the end, you know, that is going to, that's, that is yet to come, and we're living in an age between Christ being anointed as king and Christ being installed as king. Well, David is a picture of all this for us, so it's a great, great picture to look at. So in the midst of this, as, Paul, as uh, David gets anointed, one of the things that happened, Scripture says, is the Spirit of God came upon David, and it, it left Saul, and in the place, God sent a tormenting spirit to Saul. Now, that gives a lot of people heartburns, but that's what Scripture says, that God used this tormenting spirit as his agent to execute judgment on Saul for Saul's disobedience. And what had Saul done wrong? Saul had disobeyed the specific will of God. God gave him a specific mandate, something to do, and Saul decides to modify God's will and do instead his will. It was close to what God had wanted, but it was not what God directed him to do. So he, he disobeyed the specific will of God. And that's what led ultimately to him being rejected by God. So now we have him under judgment because of that. So this evil spirit now is tormenting Saul. So here, let me pick up the text here. First, First Samuel 16, verse 14, it reads, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. You, you see, they recognized where the spirit had come from. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play with the, when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who was with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. 
whoever, whenever the spirit of the God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So this is a story you may be familiar with, and what I want to highlight to you is how the C4 principle is used in this story here to direct David into David's next assignment. He's just been promoted from being shepherd, and he's going to be promoted to being a musician in the, on, under the staff of Saul and an armor bearer, both. So you'll notice, first of all, the calling aspect. Calling is about the external work of a caller. That is, someone outside you will call you. So Saul here and his attendants become the callers. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. I'm calling him to me. And one of the servants answered, I see the son of Jesse of Bethlehem. So they, they have identified this person out here. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. I'm getting ready to move him into a new role, a new assignment. So this is what commissioning agents do is they call you into your destiny, into the next aspect of what God has called you to do. Secondly, you'll see character. And there's only a couple things noted here. Really, when you say one of these things, you said it all, and that is when you say the Lord is with him. I mean, what more do you need to see? If the Lord is with you, you will have godly character. But he also notes he was a brave man as well, another aspect of character. And then we have capability. Specifically, he knows how to play the harp. The focus of this particular job interview was, can, are you a good musician? But secondarily, you speak well and you're a fine-looking man. And you might say, well, what does a musician need to speak well and be a fine-looking man? Furthermore, he's a warrior. You know, those are kind of like, those are secondary things. Well, the reason those are important is because God, is, God has given David these skills, all of these skills, for a reason. Now, the focus of this particular assignment is only going to be some of those skills, but once he gets, gets onto Saul's staff and gets within his, uh, his, you know, his control of the, the people that serve him, well, they find all these other things that they're going to use David to do, like be an armor bearer. But the focus here is the harp. He plays the harp. He knows how to play the harp. And he's fine-looking, speaks well, and he's a warrior. So those are capabilities. And finally, the commissioning. The commissioning, again, is where authority figures come in, and what they do is they, they point you. I don't, I don't, they, don't only, they not only call you to something, but they point you to what specifically you're going to do and commission you to do it. A commissioning agent sets the context and provides the resources and direction for you to do what you're called to do. So Jesse and Saul were the commissioning agents. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. This is saying, I approve of this. I agree. I'm not reluctantly sending my son. I wholeheartedly agree that David's next assignment is to serve King Saul. So David came to Saul and entered his service. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. You see, Saul did not seek to usurp Jesse's authority as the father. Saul was submitted. You see, Saul is asking for permission. That's an amazing thing. A, ki a king asking permission, allow David to remain in my service. I'm submitting to you. You are his father, his, 
his chief authority, and I'm asking you to do this, and I am pleased with him. And, of course, Jesse obviously agreed. So this is, a, this is where two commissioning agents are working together to validate a call of God on the call of God on David. So this is a great picture of how C4 guided David in the journey of what God had called him to do. So how does this, how does this impact you? How does this work with you? How does this help you discover your right career, your right job assignment? Another way to say this is how does one find and fulfill the purpose of God for his life using C4? How do you do this? So what I want you to do is do another quick little poll here. So let me uh, get this one set up here for you. Uh, the, this one is the keys to a successful career are, and I'm going to give you three answers here, a proactive plan for self-promotion and self-improvement self and self-promotion. Secondly, a life coach with an MBA from an Ivy League school or preparation, humility, and submission. So I'm going to launch this poll and uh, let you guys respond to it. And try to be honest. Don't try to guess at what I would call what I think the answer is. You know, be honest about what you think here. Okay, we're at uh, 47%, 50, 57%, 73%. do not just don't ponder this. Just react. Just go with what you think is right in your gut, 87%. Almost there. Come on. 93%. One or two more need to vote. Okay, we're still at 93%. Don't be bashful. All right, we're almost out of time. We'll give you about another two or three seconds. All right, so we're going to get 93% of you voting. All right, here's... But here's what you said, 86% uh, preparation, humility, submission, 7% said a proactive plan for self-improvement and self-promotion, another 7% said a life coach with an MBA from an Ivy League school. Uh, well, these are, these are a fairly common responses. The first one, a, a proactive plan for self-improvement and self-promotion. I am all in favor of self-improvement and self-promotion and being proactive. I think those are good things to do but that is not as good an answer as the last one, which is preparation, humility, and submission, at least to me. So I, I want to be proactive under the Spirit of God, not in my own flesh, but under the Spirit of God. And so I think the last answer gives me the tools I need to be proactive. That is prepare, be humble, and be submitted. And then the life coach with an MBA from an Ivy League school, uh, I have, uh, I've seen that. That has not been a good route uh, because the Ivy League schools are all liberal and they teach life coaching based on a humanistic worldview. So that does not lead down a good road. So I would, uh, I would vote myself for the last answer that I think the keys to a successful career are preparation, humility, and submission. So let's just take a quick look at these and uh, then we'll go into the Q&A session. So the no number one key is preparation. David developed his skills as a musician and a warrior. Well, where did he do that? He did that as a shepherd, out in the fields, faithfully serving his father, taking care of the sheep. He had many, many hours out there, and that's where he learned to, to throw 
with a slingshot. I think he was uh, able to throw left-handed and right-handed with it. And he developed his harpist skills, I'm sure, in the evening to entertain himself. He played music. He didn't have, uh, he didn't have a smartphone. He didn't have uh, TV and cable. He didn't have uh, magazines. And, and books were hard to come by, so mainly music would be the way he would do that. So he developed his skill. He used his time wisely to develop his skill. So undoubtedly, he was a very, very prepared man. He probably didn't fully know what his preparation was going to be, but he was using his time wisely, developing the skills. So that's a very important thing. Preparation is about using your time wisely to develop your skills. Find your skills and develop them well. So that's the first key. The second key is humility. David did not self-promote. He humbly served his father, developed his skills, not his kills, skills, and trained well and was recognized and invited into being the harpist for the king. So this is so important. We're, we live in a day and time where self-promotion is a big deal. I, I was talking to a client not too long ago, and the comment this particular client made about her husband was that he does not self-promote well. And I said, that's not a bad attribute. That's a good attribute. Self-promotion is a bad attribute. Because self-promotion is about me trying to do my will according to my ways or doing my perspective of what God wants me to do. The reality is that the younger you are, the, uh, the more immature you are, the less likely you are to see clearly what God's called you to do. So self-promotion is a really, really poor way to practice. You want to be humble. Humbly do what your commissioning agents direct you to do. Develop your skills. Train. Prepare yourself. Humility is a huge part of this, and with that is teachability. You've got to be teachable. You've got to be submitted. And so that brings us to key number three, which is submission to authority. David was directed by two commissioning agents, his father and his employer. And so he submitted to both of them very faithfully, did what, he, what they asked him to do. And we've all got to learn to do that. We've got to learn to be under the care and guidance of commissioning agents. I find this is one of the hardest things for people to do today. It's almost unheard of today. And yet when you look at the New Testament and you ask yourself a question like, what is it that amazed Jesus? Well, there's one thing that stands out as being amazing that, to Jesus, and that is the centurion that understood authority. He understood how authority worked. He understood the importance of authority. He understood the function of authority. He recognized it and lived within it, consistent with it. And Jesus was so astonished that he said to this, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. In other words, I haven't found anybody that understands authority like this centurion. That's a great example of how when, when professing Christians fail to honor God, According to you know, by living according to his will and his ways. We fail to discover what God has called us to do and how he's called us to do it, that God will raise up the pagans to glorify him. And so this pagan centurion was showing more skill, more wisdom, more insight than anybody else Jesus was dealing with because he understood submission to authority. I want to submit to you, in my experience, as I'm living and traveling the world, you know, 
being with people literally all over the world, I find the submission to authority is a huge block. Almost no one gets it. And those that, that pretend to get it, it's, it's pretending. It's really not very deep. It's not very profound. And we've got to get a profound revelation and understanding of what it is to be submitted to authority. That's very challenging for all of us. So these are, I believe, three keys. If you want to live well, if you want to find your race, and you want to discover what you have C4 to do, you need to do what David did. Prepare yourself. You don't know exactly what God is going to, what race he's going to assign you to, what lane you're going to run in. You just need to get yourself ready. Discover your passion. Develop your skills. You've got to be humble and teachable. You must do that. You've got to serve well. Be patient. Don't self-promote. And you must learn to submit to God, and you submit to those he's put over you. Every authority figure is a commissioning agent. God has assigned them to you. Whether they know the Lord or not doesn't matter. If you look at uh, the Exodus chapter 17 where Moses was on his way with the Israelites to the promised land, and he was having to deal with all this disputes among them. It was his pagan father-in-law who was a pagan priest who came and told him what you're doing is out of order and gave him the C4 principle to use to qualify people to help him do the dispute resolution. That is an amazing text. When you see that God gave this pagan priest, by virtue of his authority over Moses, the, the principle of God to give to Moses, to get Moses lined up with the will and ways of God, that just made it clear to me, it does not matter whether they're saved or not, God is not impeded. He can use unsaved commissioning agents to direct you into his will and his ways. So we have to be willing to submit to the God-ordained commissioning agents in our lives and trust God to direct us through them. This is what it is to really begin to get the keys to success going in your life. Be prepared, be humble, be submitted, and the purpose is to discover the, the purpose for which God has created you using the principles of Scripture like the C4 principle to help guide you into his will for your life and to his ways for how to do his will. So may the Lord give us all grace to do that well. So let's move into the Q&A time. And uh, Philip has uh, been gathering questions I trust, so I'm going to let him uh, weigh in there. If you have a question and have not submitted it, please, uh, you know, shoot it to Philip real quickly so, uh, you know, he can uh, respond and help you. Uh, if you – yeah, I've got to see several comments about audio. Hopefully everybody got to hear everything. I trust that's happening. Um, Okay, Philip, you got any questions? Well, one of the questions that we get the most frequently, Gerald, is how long does it take to discover your race? I mean, do, do I have to take this seminar once? Do I have to take it twice? I mean, how long does it take? Well, the seminar is not the, the, the magic pill. The seminar is just a tool. Uh, it's something to help you uh, understand the principle and understand something of the ways of God so you can use that principle well. So how many times do you need to take it to understand it better and better? I don't, I don't know. That's, I think that's up to you and the Lord. I think the common assumption today is 
that that I find is is people think that they because they've been through something, they've read a book or been to a seminar or taken a course, they know it, and that's just not true. Uh, you don't know it. Uh, you're not going to know it until it goes deep into you and whatever that takes, however long that takes. Uh, I've had people take the SLA seminar seven, eight times, and every time they take it, they say the same thing, uh, that they learn something new. In fact, many of them will come and accuse me of introducing something new. And I'll say, no, I, I haven't introduced anything new. I'm saying the same things I've been saying for a number of years. And they'll say, well, I've never heard this this particular point before. I said, well, I, I share it just about every time. Well, it's just they didn't have ears to hear it before, but, but that particular time they had ears to hear it. So use it as a tool to help you go deeper. That's the point. And we also have SLA alumni events. These are times where we we explore in more depth some of the nuances of the seminar. And this, these are great learning venues to help you process and go deeper. So I don't think there's any magic answer as to how many times you take it. Like, if I take it five times, then I'll know the purpose of God for my life. No, that isn't true. No, what's true is you get better and better at understanding the principle and applying it and better able to now receive guidance and counsel and recognize, you know, what God is saying through circumstances, through commissioning agents, through advisors, you know, through the various events that happen. So that's that's the point, is get into the journey of running your race and do it according to God's ways, and you will in time discover God's will for your life. Well, and the next question, Gerald, is like it, is how much time does it normally take for people to begin to get some level of clarity? Um, well, Again, that varies. Uh, I've had some people that have been able to respond fairly quickly. Um, I remember one particular man that took the seminar probably 10 years ago, and um, he was very uh, disciplined and um, diligent, and he got in the exercise. He worked those exercises. I think he worked probably four or five hours a week for months, going through every question, answering every question, wrestling with it, praying over it, talking to people about it. And, you know, within about a year, he had gotten a lot of clarity, uh, you know, but that's, that is more the exception. Uh, what I see typically happening is people get in the journey and it becomes challenging, and they're usually in the journey by themselves. And when the challenge comes, there's nobody there to help encourage them to stay on it, so they just kind of set it aside. And then something will happen, they'll go to an alumni event or they'll attend a seminar like this or they'll go back to SLA again or what, something will happen and that will stimulate them to get going again. And they'll get back on it again and then things will get hard and they'll kind of slow down and put it aside and wait for something else to stimulate. Well, that's kind of like a roller coaster ride. And in many ways that's self-imposed because you're not, you're not following God's ways. God's ways are community. We have to be in community. We need to be in community. Uh, I've got, I've got people, for example, in Hong Kong. They're about, uh, there are about um, 500 people there have been through SLA, and they have, for the last four years, they have an SLA follow-up group every week. Every week they meet for about two hours, and they go through these exercises, and. That is that has produced some really wonderful fruit. I've seen some really good fruit come from that. There's also I've seen other groups that um, like church leadership groups that were committed to really 
getting clear about getting the leaders were wise enough to realize we can't get help our people get on their journey unless we're on our journey. So we need as leaders of this church to get on our journeys. So they committed with their wives to meet every week. And they did that for something like a year, met for about two and a half, three hours every Sunday night. And it was just 12 people. And it just was mind-boggling what happened there. It was, it was revolutionary to all of them. They all gained clarity and insight about the call of God in their lives. And I think if they were on the call, they would tell you in a heartbeat, that was a tremendous activity they did, tremendous tool. And all of them have also gone to the seminar uh, more than once. They've all, they've all probably been to it at least a minimum of two or three times, some of them like four or five times. And again, for the same reason, is there's so much material in the seminar. It's like a college course coming at you in one seminar, and they realize that you know you can't go through it once and really get all that you need to get out of it. You've got to you've got to marinate in it. And so that's what they did is did the follow up and did multiple sessions of the seminar. And I think today all of them are gaining much more clarity about the call of God on their life. Whenever. What about people? Uh, you gave some examples of people that are having great results, uh, of people that are processing it in community. The one guy who got fairly quick results in a year, he essentially put 40 or 50 hours plus worth of work in a year. Oh, more than that. Got, He's put a lot more than that. Yeah. He probably and, spent more like 100 hours over the course of a year. He spent a lot of time on it. In, in community. And then, and yes. then the people in Asia, the pastor, the local church are doing it in community. What answer, what guidance or suggestion would you give to people that are like that feel like they may be the only one that they know that's currently in the journey that's close to them geographically? Well, you know, you know, you can do the follow up uh, online. You don't have to be geographically close to somebody. You just need to have, uh, you know, close communication which with the tools we have today, that's really pretty easy. So don't think just because you're located in some remote area that you don't know if anybody else has been through the seminar where you are, hey, you're not by yourself. You know, you contact an SLA consultant and a consultant help you. So if you could connect it with a consultant, the consultant can discern what it is you need and, and help you get that. So that's the key thing is, is avail yourself of the resources that are there ready to help you. And there are numerous SLA consultants around the world. Uh, and it, it really doesn't matter where they're located. You just connect with one of the consultants that you really feel a connection with and let them guide you and direct you. And I think you'll, uh, you'll find great favor and you'll find great, uh, great fruit from that. Gerald, sometimes uh, one of the questions is there's so much information it's overwhelming and people don't know where to start. Yes. What, what would you give to that? Uh, well, again, I would do the follow-up. Get in the follow-up in a group setting and just begin to process through that. And as you run across, you know, concepts or things you don't understand, go back and you can get the seminar video or audio. Go back and, and view that or listen to that or go back through the seminar, you know. But there are ways you can go back and, and pick up things that you missed and just keep processing those exercises. That, to me, is just the key. The exercises force you to wrestle with the truth and ask you very hard questions. Uh, many people have said to me, it's the questions in the exercises I've never even asked. I've never even thought to ask. And that's why they're there. They're there to stimulate you to really go deeper 
and discovering what God has created you to do. So jump in and be part of that. Well, you know, Gerald, that's a great point. I think um, what we find, do you find this to be true, is people are wrestling through the questions. They normally come up with a block yes, or, or, or something. In other words, you don't have to be able to figure it all out today. It's just what's the one part the Holy Spirit's working on in you right now and what blocks is he dealing with keeping you walking in the reality of, uh, uh, of what he has for you? So how would you describe this process of walking with God, walking with others, and then there's a topic, but then you seem to be blocked? Is that normal? Is that just me? What's I th I, My experience has been everybody has blocks, and I think that's what uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is talking about. Is, is getting rid of the sin that entangles, the things that hold us back, those are the blocks. If you can't recognize what they are in you, then you will be, you will be bound by them. To get rid of a block, you have to be able to see it. And most likely, the first person to see that block will not be you. It will be one of your commissioning agents. So this is why, or an advisor, you need, you need those people around you and you need a transparent relationship with them where they love you enough to tell you the truth. If you don't have that, you will probably just be walking blindly and you won't realize that you're blind. Well, that's often what we find is that people start, I had a young man do the course online and he answered all the follow-up and he said, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, not, 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 not really. We may be finding a block just because of the fact you think you're done. Yeah. Uh, and so the truth of the matter is trying to illustrate to him, no, it's an iterative process, and we answer what we know, but then we're blocked by our worldview. So how important is it learning what a biblical worldview really means and how important that is in the process? Because I think we're all being transformed. Yes. Well, uh, a biblical worldview to me is, is just critical. Uh, you live based on a worldview, whether you realize it or not or even think about it. You are, you're living based on a worldview. And your worldview is rooted in your view of God. So the more sound your view of God is, the more clearly you're going to see reality and the better you will be able to discern what God's called you to do. So absolutely, you've got, to, you've got to develop a sound biblical worldview. And again, you need to be taught that. Uh, this Self-teaching yourself a worldview doesn't work well. Uh, you need someone who will guide and direct you. I remember when I first started studying worldview 40 years ago, um, I was astonished because I was, by that time, I had been a Christian for, I've been a Christian, see, 50 57 years, yeah, 57 years now, older than many of you are. And I was pretty serious from day one um, and applied myself, got a lot of teaching early in my Christian walk from very godly men. So by the time I started wor uh, studying worldview, I'd been a Christian uh, almost, you know, almost 20 years. And I thought I made the assumption, well, gee, I've been to church a lot. I've heard a lot of teaching. I've sat under godly men. I've got a biblical worldview. Well, it didn't take me one or two sessions to realize I had no clue what a biblical worldview was. And so I still appreciate what Dr. Johnson taught me and how he challenged me to think and, sh and pointed out texts of Scripture about what it meant to have a biblical worldview. 
So if here's my point. If you have not had specific training in it, and I don't consider self-teaching very much training. I mean, being taught by a godly man or woman who understands a biblical worldview. If you don't have that, then you probably don't think very well biblically, and you need to get that. And if you get that and get that well, then you will approach SLA much with, with much better ability to process it and to apply it. So if you don't have worldview training in your background, I would just stop and get some of that first, and then I would jump into SLA. Well, and that's, a, that's an important point because when you talk to Christians, they say, oh, I've got a biblical worldview. I believe Jesus died on the cross, and he's coming back for me, and I, sh you know, I should have ethics and morals, but you know, I've got a biblical worldview, and really that's not a biblical worldview at all. I mean, it's part of the story, but it's by far, it's not the story, not the whole story. It's a very simplistic approach, yeah. yeah. Sadly, though, a lot of people think that way. Sadly, I used to think that way. I'm grateful I don't anymore. <laughs> well, I think we all are, and it's by the grace of God. Uh, and uh, getting in environments to be trained as mm -hmm. we're maturing in Christ, which we all are. We all are. You know, I, I personally, I've been working with the SLA message now for about a decade, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, and, and uh, it becomes more real as I'm faithful with the next step that God's highlighting. And I think sometimes as he highlights something, you know, fear will try to come in because he's asking you to give up a way that doesn't really work, not really, to align with him, mm -hmm. or maybe it works to some level to be transformed in our mind to begin to do things his way, which requires sometimes more faith than I want to exercise. Hmm. So what advice would you give someone if they're sitting there? Most of the people I think on the call have been through SLA once. Uh, if you haven't been through SLA yet, what would you recommend? And then the follow-up question, if you have been through SLA, where would you start? Two questions. Well, if you haven't been through it, obviously the thing to do is to try to go through it. You can uh, do that a number of ways. Uh, you can attend a, a live event, uh, and there are various places that those happen. Uh, you just need to connect with uh, an SLA consultant to get direction there. Uh, you can get the video, uh, and there, there are two videos. There's a 2010 video, and there's a 2013 video. The 2013 video uh, is the most complete presentation that I've ever done. And when you buy the video, you get both of those. You get the 2010 presentation and the 2013. Obviously, the 2013 is longer than the 2010. And there's also a, an audio presentation of a 2004 uh, uh, you know, seminar that I did that is a more abbreviated presentation of, of the SLA seminar. It's about half as long as the 2010 and 2013. So I, for those that have almost no knowledge of the material at all, and just to get started, just get the 2004 audio. That gets you started, and very simple approach. And when you're ready for more meat, get the video, and the 2010-2013 will give you more meat. So those are available. You can connect with, uh, with Philip. Philip has uh, a tool where you can view the video online and then he will interact with you and coach you through it, which is, I think, is an excellent way to go. So that's a, that would be something I highly recommend. So there are a number of different ways to do this. The tools are out there. 
if you're hungry, just connect with an SLA consultant, and they'll they'll guide you on on how to get the training you need. They'll personalize it for you to help you, you know, be as efficient with your time and resources as possible. That's it as far as questions, Gerald. Is there anything else? That, uh, um, well, I thought I, I was just looking. It looked like there were some other questions here. Um, there are none showing up on my side. Well, I saw I saw something about how many people have hit the bullseye, the C4 bullseye. Uh, I think that was one question. Um, was that up here? I thought I saw that. Well, no. just yeah, here it is. Yeah, it is up there. What percent of people do you estimate hit the C4 bullseye? Um, I know Jesus did. Um, I think Paul probably did, and Peter. And I'm sure there have been a number of men, Calvin, John Calvin, uh, people like that. I think the Barovians had a number of people that did. Uh, obviously, there are degrees of which people are, are able to do this. And for me, the C4 principle is a tool I plan to use the rest of my life to help me make choices, to help me try to discern what I should do and not just pursue things that I could do. So I think part of humility is recognizing that you never have it together. You never fully know. You never fully see it correctly. You're always trying to see it better and better. So uh, it, that that's one of those questions like, well, you know, it's really kind of hard to answer. I don't really know what percent. But I do know this. The people I uh, I work with and the closest to uh, that are on this journey, um, they're all growing and maturing and bearing more and more fruit, and I know that's the right direction. And uh, for many of them, I may not be, live long long enough to see all that God will do, you know, in and through them, and how lined up they may get. But I, I think they're on the road for continually getting more and more aligned. Uh, there's terminology in in mathematics. So those of you that are trained in mathematics, you'll understand this. Uh, that really, I think, describes this process. Uh, this is really an asymptotic situation. And an asymptotic situation, what you're trying to do is is you're trying to hit this, say, I'm holding up my hand for those of you who have a, a video. You're trying to get closer and closer to this, my hand, you know, over time. You can never quite get there, but you can get closer and closer to it. That's called asymptotic. So I think it's an asymptotic kind of situation. You just keep growing and growing and growing, but you never, never quite fully get there. And we've got to be okay with that. You know, if you demand that God, you're going to put a demand on God about how he operates his universe, then you're going to get frustrated, and you'll probably quit. But if you're going to surrender and let God define reality and the way he wants to work, then you'll embrace this, and you'll just make it a point that I'm going to live my life continually trying to grow and mature, never expecting to fully arrive, but always arriving in the process of arriving. So I think that's the right way to approach it. Um, that's a great, that's a great have, point. I'm sorry. Uh, that's a great point because I think, you know, having used the tool is that there's more fruit of the spirit in my life related to my vocational assignments than mm -hmm. there is today versus earlier in the process. And I'm still not fully there. There's still a lot of questions that are unanswered that I'm working out with my advisors. But versus in the beginning, I would make decisions not in as much alignment as I have today, that the fruit of it would be 
projects that never quite fully got where they where I thought they were supposed to get. Um, mm -hmm. I was stressed out. Um, I wasn't, and it doesn't mean that today things aren't difficult, mm -hmm. but it means that God's peace and his empowering presence is there when I'm doing what I'm assigned to do, regardless of how difficult things look. Mm -hmm. There's a grace versus when I'm doing things my way, there's not a grace. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think the whole goal is over time is who, you know, Jesus is always the standard. And who reaches that standard besides Christ? Well, no one, but nonetheless, it's still the standard. Mm -hmm. Well, here's another question I see here. What, is, what if your father is not confident in giving you commissioning statements? Who do you ask for counsel? Well, you have a lot of commissioning agents. Your earthly father is one. Uh, your teachers, your employers, your church leaders, uh, civil leaders, uh, just anywhere, any place where uh, there is authority that you're submitted to, that you have an authority figure. And whether they're aware of commissioning statements or not, they will speak commissioning statements to you. So it's not a matter of sitting down and having a commissioning agent saying to you, well, I'm going to give you a commissioning statement now, so here it is. That's not the way it works. It's the way it seems to work is just in the process of living life, they say things to you. They say, wow, you're really good at this, or wow, have you thought about this, or you, you need to really rethink this over here. They're giving you direction. And so we have to be open to what the Father is saying in and through all kinds of authority figures, and it doesn't matter whether they're aware of what they're doing or not. You know, Gerald, I think a practical example I could give, uh, about two and a half, summer of 2012, you had mentioned to me personally, you had said, you know, Philip, we've been praying and think you ought to uh, consider going back to school. And I think my response was, uh, I think you're crazy. Uh, I don't know if I said that to you, but I probably said, well, praise the Lord, thank you very much. But inside, I was thinking you were crazy. And so uh, I really wasn't open to the idea of going back to school, and I wouldn't even pray about it. And then I went back through the SLA seminar that I was helped facilitating at our local church, and what did you know a few weeks later just happened to be the role of commissioning agents in your life. And so at the end of that course, it occurred to me that my father, my natural father, who does not intentionally study a biblical worldview, I can't even tell you the last time he went into a church mm -hmm. other than a funeral, it occurred to me that here was a person that was a brother in the Lord taking on the role of a spiritual father being you, and my natural father who's asked me the same question for the last 25 years, don't you wish you would have gone to college? And every year I would give him the same basic response that I gave you. And so it occurred to me that, oh my goodness, here are two men that are, one's my real father, who is not necessarily, I'm grateful for him and he's a wonderful blessing, but not necessarily a great godly example in many ways, hmm. although a blessing to me and a spiritual father, who are both saying the same thing. And I just said, oh, my gosh, in, in session six, which is commissioning agents and advisors, it says they call out things in you that you can't see yourself. And I'm sitting there in the church going, God, here are two men you've sovereignly placed in my life saying something I don't like and I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. And I said a simple prayer. I said, Lord, if this is you, I'm in, but you know I don't want to do it, and I have no interest in doing it. Mm. If it's you, would you give me the grace and change my heart along the way. Mm. Be my, if it's you, I'm in. 
would you give me the grace? And so I didn't see it, but I was open to asking after I was confronted through multiple different things, and God's Spirit made it clear. And so, you know, then God made provision for me to go back to school as an adult. Um, at uh, started at 42, taking 12 hours a semester with a wife that does not work outside the home. Uh, and God has supernaturally made provision for us the entire time, and it's been one of the most enjoyable experiences hmm. uh, the entire way through. So it's not really about me, but it was about the fact that I had a commissioning agent who was a brother in the Lord that acted as a father that related to something my natural father saw, even though he didn't know he was speaking prophetically. Um, and then God gives you the grace to do it, even though it's difficult. Huh. That's good. That's good, Phil. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't like it in the beginning. Uh, I understand. Uh, that's part of it. Is you got to recognize you may not always like what God directs you to do. Well, here's some more questions real quickly. Um, can you talk a little about God's timing and how that works out? And I think God's timing is always perfect. It uh, Many times it frustrates us because we tend to be impatient and we want things to happen on our time frame, and we've got to learn to be content with his. If you're on this, you know, this webinar, is a reason you're on this webinar. You need to hear what the Holy Spirit's trying to say to you through this webinar. Uh, he will use this very individually for you, so uh, it's God's time for him to communicate something to you through this webinar. So that's what you ask. Lord, show me what you want to communicate to me through this webinar. So it's about learning to live with God in faith, knowing that everything happens for a reason. God's always orchestrating events to accomplish his purposes. So learning how to live at that level. And again, you, you won't do that well by yourself. You've got to have other people in your life that you can talk with, that can you can be transparent with, that you can process with. Uh, here's a comment. It's discouraging to think that, uh, like King Saul, if you get it mostly right, you can still be de derailed in the end. Well, hopefully that sobers us all to keep us humble. What happened with Saul is he got into pride. And, and when you get into pride, you begin to try to self-define. And self-defining does, self does not work. God wants to define reality. He wants to be in charge. And you have to die to self to serve him. So be encouraged that, that, that the challenge is to continually humble yourself. And this is where, again, commissioning agents and advisors will help you by pointing out when you're in pride and encouraging you to humble yourself, and that, that keeps you safe. Humility is a place of safety. Um, another comment is very striking to realize how counterculture the three take-home points are. Hone your skills, uh, don't self-promote, and be patient. And yes, they are counterculture, but if we want to live according to the will and ways of God, we can expect it will be counterculture. Um, Okay, just a few more here. I realized that this morning I have gotten on a train that only ends when it transcends into heaven and still keeps going. There's no end date of arrival. That's a good way to put it. We are continually growing and maturing. We don't arrive. We're continually arriving, and hopefully that will keep us humble and submitted to the Lord. Uh, how big should your community be? Um, well, I, you know, I don't know what the magic answer there is. Jesus had his three. He had his 12, um, he had 30, he had 70, he had 120, he had 500. I'm sure at each level he had different relationships. His closest relationships were the three. So for me, I, I have about 
about three really close, tight relationships with men that I just implicitly trust God will use in my life, and I really lean on them for big decisions. Uh, there are others in my life that I might lean on for lesser decisions. Uh, so I, I don't know what, what the magic number is here. I think don't be focused on the number. Just ask the Lord to show you who these people are, and however many it turns out to be, it will be. But probably it's not going to be many really close ones. It's probably going to be three, four, you know, something like that for the real close ones. But you'll have you'll have community beyond that. Don't limit yourself just to your closest, but you'll have layers of community just like Jesus did. Okay, when David was uh, young, Samuel anointed him as king, but did not until later did he become, come into his functional role as king. At what point does commissioning take place? Commissioning takes place all along the way. Authority figures are driving and directing you every step. So you stay connected, you stay humble, you stay submitted, and allow God to use authority figures to guide and direct you. Uh, how can you make the best contribution to your employer? Be faithful. Be faithful. Treat your employer the way you would want to be treated. Be obedient. Be submitted. Be humble. The limit of all that, of course, is unless your employer asks you to violate Scripture. So you want to... Be a good servant, uh, and, and, and don't seek to leave where you are unless the Lord is indicating to you through some situation, some circumstance, some prompting or commissioning agent you need to be looking at leaving. Okay, how do I excel at this? Be faithful. Be faithful in the process of discovering what you have been called to do. Never give up. Never, never give up. Keep at it. And the only way you're never going to give up is you've got to be connected in community, and the community will help each other never give up. And what are practical steps? I would encourage you to connect with an SLA consultant. Do that uh, and, and ask them to help you develop a plan for you really understanding the C4 principle and other relevant principles. C4 is not the only principle that you will learn in SLA. It's the, one of the primary principles. But you need to learn the principles that are needed to help you do what you're called to do and discover the purpose of God for your life. Well, let me just wrap this up real quickly here. Uh, what's the next step? Well, for if you're an SLA alumni, I encourage you to re-engage with the SLA material. Take the SLA seminar again. Do the follow-up with a group, community. Engage a coach, an SLA consultant. An SLA consultant will help you. You can get a, an Ivy League MBA coach, and they will have no clue how to help you line up with the will and ways of God, most likely, if all they know is what they were trained, what they learned from a liberal school. You need someone who's been trained to think biblically about destiny and purpose. SLA consultants are trained that way. So take advantage of allow them to help you. Here is a website, strategieswork.com slash consultants and you can uh, take a look at the ones that are available to you and connect with one. Philip is one of them, and uh, he is in the Austin area, but he's not limited to the Austin area. He can serve pretty much anybody anywhere. So uh, for those of you in Austin, you have easy access to him. Those of you outside of Austin, well, then you've got you to connect with him by phone, but we have great telecommunications today. For those that are new to the SLA message, contact an SLA consultant and... Uh, Philip has a specifically has a special uh, website set up where he can help you go through the SLA material online and then coach you through it. So that's a great way to do it. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. 